You're listening to the Nerd to Know Media Network. Join us at nerdtoknowmedia.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's now time for our main event. Take a trip back in time to the golden era of the wrestling world with your host, Chris Tetrold Blaine. Welcome to Once Upon a Turnbuckle. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to another special edition of Once Upon a Turnbuckle. And I get to do a little bit of another one-two here, which I've done before uh, when it comes to, to wrestling books, when I've been able to, to speak to two guys that have been involved in the same book. I get to kind of do the same again here. So a few weeks ago, we had one half of the dream team on that produced this work of art there. Ah, oh, there we go. Look at that. In stereo. Uh, the man himself, B. Brian Blair, on um, mem- very memorable episode, and I'm thrilled to welcome his partner in crime, as it were, uh, journalist, author, biographer Ian Douglas. Welcome to the show, mate. Uh, appreciate being here, Chris. Fortunately, no actual crimes were committed in, during <laughs> the writing of the book that I'm aware of. Just, just whatever had occurred beforehand, <laughs> which you got to write about. So yeah, well, there were there were a few of those. But, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let, let's sort of leave that, leave them on the page. I believe, I believe the statute of limitations has. Uh, elapsed on those <laughs> thank god because then we finally got to hear about them in here this yeah. is absolutely <laughs> I, I start off like i did with brian really i cannot praise this book enough and i can't you know i have been you know since i read it is one of those where i could not put it down um I, I'm, I'm glad you enjoyed it uh it was it was really written um well fortunately since i'm writing from a wrestling fan's perspective and i've seen some wrestling books that were written by non-wrestling fans and i think it shows that i'm i'm able to help structure it in the format to where if i picked it up cold and i had no familiarity with the subject matter yeah i'm i'm crafting the very sort of narrative that would make it difficult for me to put it down so i'm very very happy to hear that that, that, there you go and we'll delve into the kind of the the technical side behind it as as i said sort of we're both writers i'm very very interested in in that side of things particularly when it comes to wrestling writing so we'll we'll go further down in the book um in a in a bit um but really sort of to kick off to lay a bit of groundwork i suppose on your work today because it's not just wrestling writing you know you do you know sports writing and and uh, for some well-known publications as well you know men's health is up there um, there's one of them yes yeah so how did your let's wind it back to when your writing journey began was it something you always wanted to do or something that you kind of stumbled across oh brother um <laughs> it's 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 one of those things where you're going through school, you think that you're a good student, and then you start having certain ideas reflected back toward you where you're, you're not necessarily getting praise for your performance on your calculus exams <laughs> or uh, any of the, or, or any or your AP bio exam, but your, your writing instructors, your English instructors are telling you 
hey, there's, there's something to your work here that is rare, at least among students that I interact with on a high school level. So you might want to consider this. And, and that's really where the germ of the idea of doing something creative with writing began is simply by having that idea reinforced along the way that you're, you're better than most. Now, better than most, better than most may just mean that you're better than one in 10 at a certain level. But if, if you're the only one that leverages that into a creative career and you learn from your mistakes, I, hopefully you learn from other people's mistakes and you also learn from your successes. Hopefully there are some of those as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can take it quite far and also look for areas where, also look to see where your areas of expertise overlap. Um, you may be you may be better than 90 writers out of 100. There may mm -hmm. still be nine out of 100 that are better than you are, but those <laughs> nine may not be as well versed or steeped in uh, wrestling lore and history as you are. So that yeah. creates an opportunity for you as well. Was, was it when you started writing, was wrestling always on the, uh, on the horizon for you? Is it something you always wanted to get into? Man, um, the answer to that question has to be no. And it's because when, when I was growing up anyway, I, not that it was all that long ago, but um, I, I understood <clears throat> that, that Dave Meltzer and Wade Keller and those sorts of guys are out there. Mm -hmm. But you have no idea how you're going to develop uh, the sort of contact list that those guys have, how you'd get involved in it, how you'd make a living doing it. And I was in college at the University of Michigan where I came across the Death Valley Driver Review Board and I start seeing guys like uh, Dean Rasmus and Phil Schneider. And I see these guys with these, these very entertaining reviews and commentaries on pro wrestling. And you know, it's, it's inspirational and you, you begin to think, man, it would be nice if I could just write something that could turn all of this, this investment in professional wrestling as a fan to, to, to leverage that investment in some way so that it isn't so much of a one-way street. I like but, that, yeah, I really like that. Yeah. I, so. I, I have similar thoughts myself, you know, sort of letting some kind of a cat out of the bag. It's something that's way off yet. I've started work on, um, I've, I've written novels in the past, so I, I'm working on the first kind of, what could be termed non-fiction thing and it's more my experience as a wrestling fan exactly what you know along the lines of of what you suggested there and i think yeah you know dedicating so much of your life to it there's got to be something more you can get out of it rather than just sort of sitting and watching it or attending shows and things like that so no, i'm fully on board with that yeah you you get to turn all you get to reclassify all of that fandom as research in okay. in, in an instant and it's and it's and it's a marvelous feeling that you can go back to your parents, your ex-girlfriends, or whoever told you you were wasting your time watching this trash, and say, "Look, it was all to my uh, creative and professional benefit." That is, that's one of the best feelings I've ever had. Go. I can finally, I should hopefully one day have something I can take to my wife then and fully justify why I <laughs> wasted my time with it. That's, uh, 
Cool. So, so your um, let, let's kind of segue into the, the wrestling side in particular, since obviously you know one of the reasons we're here. Um, as a fan, where where did your wrestling journey begin? You know, what what year was it? What was it that hooked you in? Uh, the first time I ever watched professional wrestling, I'm sure it was intriguing, but it was just in bits and pieces. I was aware who I was aware of who Hulk Hogan was. Mm. I grew up in a post uh, collapse of Detroit big time wrestling environment. So I didn't know who the Sheik was. Um, occasionally I'd hear Dick the Bruiser referenced because there was the WWA NWA war that took place in Detroit in a prior, in a prior generation. Mm -hmm. But uh, I had no understanding of that. I first heard of wrestling, when I first heard of wrestling, it was Hulk Hogan and Roddy Piper. But the first time I ever gained uh, control of the television and a remote control long enough to catch a match, it would have been right around 1986 and 87. And the first pro wrestler I ever saw, I'm sure it was an episode of Wrestling Superstars, a wrestling challenge. It was Macho Man Randy Savage. Okay. And uh, seeing him come down to the ring in the colorful <laughs> outfit as the Intercontinental Champion and drop an elbow on a guy off the top <laughs> rope, I was hooked from that very moment. That's cool. And so many I've spoken to actually a similar age range, I suppose, mm -hmm. even though I was a little, it took me a few more years before I really discovered what it was. But Randy Savage, I think he stood out. I mean, there was larger than life characters. Hulk Hogan, you know, the warrior was soon to come out as well. But I think Randy Savage was the one I feel that was flamboyant enough, but still kept it grounded as a person. He didn't become a comic book character. Um, oh, brilliant. No, no, no. And uh, I, I've heard you say as well that you, um, uh, in, in a previous interview that you you then would drop in elbows on your your stuffed animals and I was in exactly the same yeah the Lorax in particular <laughs> I, I brutalized that poor guy uh, I think one of, one of the underrated <clears throat> one of the underrated elements to uh, to wrestling fandom back then is you know, hypothetically let, let's let's postulate a person who's never um whose family is never a, a child whose family is never going to spring for a pay-per-view event mm -hmm. who is never going to allow them to watch saturday night's main event because you can never get control of the of the remote control in prime time yeah and in, in fact you don't even have cable well the only champion you may have gotten an opportunity to watch wrestle on uh, syndicated television back then was probably the intercontinental mm -hmm. champion because Hogan wasn't doing uh, Hogan wasn't doing wrestling challenge and wrestling superstar. So right. for me in that period, Savage was the champ because he was the only yeah. guy I ever got an opportunity to see wrestle That's with enough. the gold. That's fair. I, I grew up with, so it was 91 when I, decided to go on my own journey. I kind of knew about it through an older cousin probably a year or so before that. Hulk Hogan was rammed down my throat, pretty much. Mm -hmm. You know, it was either Hogan or the Warrior, and I ended up with everything Hulk Hogan, where compared to a few of the others, I thought he was quite dull. Um, you know, honest opinion, I don't think he was that exciting to watch. So it was the smaller guys that I gravitated to, like Savage. Unfortunately, at that point, I think Randy Savage has started to get to the end of his WWF in-ring stint. So I didn't mm -hmm. get to experience that, you know, that sort of late 80s. I mean, was there particular moments of his that really sort of 
sucks you in apart from his look and everything and the dropping of the elbow is there any like angles and that that you remember that really did kind of stick with you back then i think um you, we can't we can't overrate the uh the realism element and and the fact that as a six seven eight year old child when i first had my introduction to wrestling and to savage i thought it was real I thought it was a, a legitimate athletic contest. You couldn't have told me any different, no matter how uh, how aggressively you attempted to do so. Yeah. And um, Savage, when Savage was a heel, I di- I didn't care. He was my guy. If Hogan beat him, I said, "Well, of course Hogan beat him. He's got him outweighed by seventy pounds." I I still viewed Savage as the underdog. Well, of course yeah. Savage is going to rake his face and <laughs> wrap tape around his throat. I'd do the same thing if a guy outweighed me like that. I I viewed it as a, a as a bullying. Out- <laughs> element where Hogan's the bully beating up on the younger guy beating up on the smaller guys on the roster and I'd like to see somebody get one over on it that's a good take on it I like that yeah yeah Yeah. so you know by the time by the time it got to be 91 92 and they start working the angle with uh then they start working the angle with Ric Flair and Miss Elizabeth um I took that personally as well (laughs) job done though on their you know on their part that's kind of what you're meant to be feeling like so absolutely was, i yeah. was i was properly enraged and uh, wanted to see flair get his come up and that, that, that was one of the first sort of um the, the main kind of events i think around the time that i first got into it wrestlemania 8 and the angle was very very personal you know when you're bringing someone's wife into it i hadn't really seen that before you know in the in the early years um, it's, a, it's a great way to get under your skin, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, decades later, when you hear that that elements of that angle may have contributed to the legitimate downfall yeah. of the marriage, then I begin to feel a little bit uh, guilty and uncomfortable <laughs> with my fandom. Yes, and we saw that again, you know, later on with Benoit and Sullivan, and you know, yeah, leave your mm-hmm. personal life at home if you can. It's very difficult <laughs> when you're both into it, I suppose. It's uh, um, are you kind of, do you keep up with it still or are you sort of more of an old school fan? Less so than I used to. Um, I think that I can't, I can't speak for everyone. I think you have, you tend to have a special admiration for the wrestlers who are older than you and maybe one or one or two that you can look at as members of your peer group. like. Um, I'm 42 years old now, and I look at someone like Samoa Joe as being roughly the same age range, and that's sort of that's sort of the cutoff where um, I be you know the, the inner crotchety old man begins to kick in and sure. says, "Okay, I'm not going to cheer for any of these young <laughs> whippersnappers." But also, I think wrestling has. Uh, speaking of my my inner crotchety old man, I think that that wrestling has drifted away from the the uh the mathematics that contribute to the pinfall the the yeah the equation that results in a pinfall i think they've drifted away from that I mean, we we spoke a little bit earlier about boxing so i'll mm-hmm. i'll use an example uh nigel ben and chris eubank if mm-hmm. 
if Chris Eubank catches Nigel Ben with a haymaker and drops him, and Nigel Ben beats the beats the count just barely, hmm. Eubank doesn't need to catch Nigel Ben with three more haymakers, <laughs> even heavier than the one that dropped him, in order to finish him off. He's no. he's more susceptible to something that wouldn't have put it away, put him away if he was caught with it earlier in the fight, yeah. but. Uh, wrestling is now drifted into the territory where you know, a DDT doesn't finish a guy. So now I need to drape his legs over the top rope and hit him with the DDT. Oh, that doesn't work. Now I need to brain buster him off the yeah. top rope. And that that doesn't work for me, unfortunately. That's right. I hear it. I, I, I don't watch it. People who listen to me regularly probably get sick of me saying that I, I don't watch it. I haven't done for about 15, 20 years. What I have seen of it, you can certainly tell how planned you know people can say it's always been scripted fair enough can't get away from that certain elements of it anyway but the whole thing now looks like it's been sat down gone through move by move and they've lined up all the spots they want to do and they're just literally moving from one to the other there's no story in between right and i had a um i had a recent conversation with steve kern uh who and, and i think you'll appreciate where he's coming from uh, he said that the, the way he approached matches, ideally, if someone's covering you within the first two minutes of a, of a bout, you should be kicking out before the one count. You know, with beyond five minutes, maybe the ref is able to hit the mat once and you kick out. Ten minutes in, maybe you start registering early in the two count. Fifteen minutes in, you're kicking out later in the two count. Mm. He said if a in in a match, if you're kicking out at two, one minute into the match, yeah. and then 45 minutes later, you're still kicking out at, at two, the, the audience should be wondering, wait a minute, everything that everything that happened between the first minute and the 45th minute was BS because it didn't register any additional yeah. time on the count. This is nonsense. <laughs> yeah, and that makes complete sense. <clears throat> it's... Um... I, I was listening to one of the podcasts recently. I can't think because I've been listening to two main ones. Uh, Jake Roberts is a guy that I could listen to all day long. Um, I think his promos were the best. Even his stories are the best. It may have been his or it may have been Jeff Jarrett's. One of them did say the the art of the, the rest hold, um, you know, an arm bar, a chin lock or whatever. You would have a guy back in the day holding those down for, you know, a minute or so. They then became a certain point in the industry where the fans would chant boring. But what they were doing, which I never quite, I, I, I never thought about it like this, is they were given the, the announcers the chance to get them over. You know, they gave them a chance where they could slow it down and talk about them, where rather than just calling each move that they're doing, one consecutively, the one after the other. And, you know, so many, I think the lost art of old school wrestling, which I loved, starting to uh, realize how much of it is gone now yeah just that, just makes, for, that makes total sense yeah just for all these these little things where yeah back in the day i probably thought these guys who wrestled slower were you know less exciting to watch but it's like i there were heels i hated but now i respect them like any of them because of what they did they they did their job but they made the hero look good which i think yeah. is 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 even better than making yourself look good in, in it really 
Oh, certainly. Yeah. And I mean, the rest hold, the announcer is offering a commentary on it. He can be explaining how Roberts is softening up the head and neck area to make him, to make his opponent more susceptible to the, to the DDT and the short arm clothesline when he finally gets them in. Mm. But yeah, when you, it, it is helping the audience to understand. And unfortunately it's devolved into, man, I, I hate to sound like a, <laughs> I, I hate to sound like someone who uh, listens to Cornette nonstop, which I don't, although I, I certainly find him entertaining. But yes, it's devolved into dropping. Someone can get dropped on their head 15 times consecutively. Yeah. And um, it, it still doesn't register a three. No. Are these guys superhuman? You know, you mentioned the DDT not being enough. Nobody um, used to land a DDT like Jake Roberts or Arn Anderson. It was enough right. and you believed it. Mm -hmm. these guys weren't going to get up and then it just became a bypass move you know it just became something that yeah someone's going to get straight up or again i think i've heard jay roberts say it just shows they didn't do it as good as i did <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs> right anyway back let's, let's kind of steer it back to your work we're going down a bit of a rabbit hole here which is great um let's uh let's, let's bring it in line with the start of your wrestling writing then i believe it started with uh, a book that you did with the beast down seven Unless I... um, we can we can start there, um, but I would say the the first time I ever I was ever able to write about wrestling and actually call it productive work was when I was a graduate student reporter at Northwestern University, and I got to cover the Windy City Wrestling promotion yeah. in Chicago, and there was a show where. This would be this would be 2005. There was a show where Abyss and AJ Styles and Larry Zabisco uh, showed up wow. and got and got to wrestle there. And that was the first time I was ever able to write about professional wrestling in a professional context and get credited for it. Okay. Uh, cool. So beyond that, um, the very reason I was able to get in get in contact with Dan Severn and position myself to help him with this book is because I was, one of my writing gigs was in helping with search engine optimization, blog-based content for the State Games of Michigan organization, the West Michigan Sports Commission. And at that point, I'd already worked in, um, in the fitness industry and one of the people who I got to interview and shoot with was Kurt Angle on, on multiple occasions. I got to go to Kurt, I got to take the, uh, the double-decker megabus from Detroit, Michigan to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, then catch a cab to Kurt Angle's house. Um, wow. He answered the door, got to go down to the basement and watch as he finished up his leg presses and then I conducted an interview um, with horrible uh, cinematography <laughs> as he as he talked about the uh, the piece of fitness equipment that we made the the handheld um, rotating free weight known as a burn machine. I didn't okay. name it. Don't blame me for that. No, that's fine. <laughs> uh, that, but but we had, we got him talking about that on camera. I was able to interview him later when I worked for a real estate tech company in uh, San Francisco. And then, so once I got in this position with the State Games of Michigan, I was able to interview, I was able to interview Kurt again 
um, to talk about what he considers to be an optimal, um, true amateur wrestling workout. And his workouts were, of course, absolutely barbaric and insane. And, and, and from there, I was able to go to Taz and say, hey, Taz, I did this interview with Kurt with respect to wrestling. Would you be willing to talk to me about, ju about judo workouts? And uh, Taz agreed, but he said it all had to be done via email, which was mm -hmm. fine. Um, from there, I was able to talk to Diamond Dallas Page about yoga training. Um, and I'm not sure if I was able to interview another wrestler at that point prior to Dan Severn, but I was able to then pitch Dan Severn and say, let's talk about combat sports workouts. Wow. And, and Severn lives in Coldwater, Michigan. It's about, um, there's no really easy way to get there from Detroit. It's about a, it's about a two hour drive. Okay. But uh, I was able to get Dan Severn on the phone. We spoke for about an hour and a half. I really only needed to speak with him for 15 to 20 minutes. And at the conclusion of that discussion, I told myself, man, if, if, if he's that effusive with the information, then if I was able to get him on the phone maybe 12 or 13 additional times, yeah. we might have enough content for a book. And during a subsequent discussion, Dan said that he wanted to work on a book. And I said, well, if you're willing to give me about an hour of your time every day for two weeks, we can probably get a book written. And uh, the end result of that was Realist Guy in the Room. Yeah, I think that's what we called it. Yes, Realist <laughs> Guy in the Room, Life and Times of Dan Severin. That's, a, that's that's an amazing story really to yeah sort of how you how that came about i mean that's answered a lot of other questions i probably could have thrown at you um but sort of working your way through guys like kurt angle and taz i mean was something like that again going back to similar to a previous question but was something like that on the horizon did you want to get to the point that you that you could help one of these wrestlers one of these stars to get their story out there uh i i can't say um I, I have a story i can tell you um it make it make I, i'm not going to tell you the full story because i don't want to get in trouble there was an there was a potential opportunity in 2010 where i might have been able to contribute to the autobiography of a very, very famous Detroit-based boxer. And that deal came off the table at the last moment because uh, even though that boxer was going to be paid very well for his story, he turned to me and asked me how much I was willing to pay him Right. for the right to be his co-author um, because it would do wonders for my writing career, which at that point was non-existent. I was, a, I was strictly a business person at that point and wasn't even thinking about writing. Okay. Um, so it was, it was a nice fantasy. Uh, writing a book with someone was a nice fantasy for about two days until... Mm -hmm. The, uh, the subject of the, of the potential book uh, began asking me how much money I was prepared to kick back to him. Obviously, that 
that opportunity came off the table. So no, I wasn't really thinking about it until my interaction with Dan said. Okay. That's, it's always, I've read countless numbers of, of wrestling biographies. It's always fascinated me, especially when there is another writer involved. So look at your role then. So you just let us into on about sort of about 14 hours or so, two, two weeks um, conversing with Dan Seven to, to get his story out. So obviously tell us what, just talk through how that works for you. So you obviously, you're, you're having these conversations with him. What do you do then with the raw material? Is it, it can't be as simple as you re-listen to it and you literally jot everything down. You've got to pull out the stuff you know is, is, you can't be putting everything in. Am I wrong? You cannot put everything in. Um, not everything. This this gets it. This gets into another area, but but this is fine. I, I really need to go here in order to suitably answer your question. Sure. When when you are the when you are a co-author, it's it's my belief. Not every wrestler, I know, I know that not every wrestling co-author shares this belief. Mm. It's my belief that you have to be a responsible steward of the information that's being shared with you and that you have a responsibility to look out for the legacy of the individual who's sharing their story. And yeah. so as an example of that, the, the person you're working with may have a set of, of 10 wrestling ring rat groupie stories that they're well aware uh, will um, reliably pop the boys every time they tell those stories at the bar. Right. And they, they, lead, they omit nothing in the, in the telling of those stories and if, if you were to tell all of those stories in that person's autobiography, which is intended to immortalize them, mm. you can, you know, th they'll be entertaining mm. and you may set things up to the extent where you, you turn off a sizable portion of the fans who have an yeah. interest in this book. And you also set it up to where the only thing that will ever be remembered about the book is how salacious yeah. it was. <laughs> and you're doing a, you're doing, you're actually doing a disservice to that wrestler if you yeah. allowed all of those stories to be told. So do you maybe allow one and a half to two of those stories to be told and tone it down a bit just yeah. so that the fan understands that this person how, how thick the presence of ring rats was during that period of time and how plentiful those opportunities to engage with ring rats were during that period. Um, yes, you, you hit those points and you move on to, uh, you move on to other material. Um, right. You don't need to, uh, you don't need to degrade the, uh, the book. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I can, yeah, I, I can think of some of the ones I've, I've read before. Cause I, you kind of see the ones that are say they're written by the person that they're about, you know, there's no mention of, of 
um, co-authoring and, and things like that. Do you think it's important sometimes for there to be that independent person sort of aiding the story along rather than giving someone, here you go, here's a book full of blank pages, fill them with whatever is in your head? Yes. Um, sometimes people have political opinions. Um, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not referring to Brian who has had a political career. I'm not referring just to him. Mm. I'm referring to, frankly, everyone I've been involved in a, in a book with. They, they have their political opinions. Uh, those opinions may be near and dear to you. And maybe you want to encapsulate them in, in some way where you talk about your general life's philosophy. And maybe you can get those points across in a way that's palatable to a, a broader cross-section of the readership. But um, the majority of wrestling fans who are purchasing the book of a professional wrestler, they're not going to be all that interested in the political beliefs or religious beliefs of the wrestler to the extent that they want to read 20 or 30 pages of it in a 300 page book yeah. um, now with that being said uh, I worked on the book of Bugsy McGraw who's a devout Christian and 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 so am I I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to distance myself from this the point I want to make is that's a very um, that's a very important and significant part of his life he devoted um, I think two and a half total pages to such content in his book, um, which I think is around 320 pages. And, you know, then I'll read in a review where somebody said, well, it, it was good until he got all Jesus-y. <laughs> okay. you know, it's, it's, it's two and a half pages. Like some, for some people, their tolerance for that is so minimal yeah. that for some people, any references is too much. I, I had a, I had another uh, reviewer of Bugsy McGraw's book just recently who gave it one out of five stars on Amazon and then said, well, he um, did something to do with the fact that he was, um, what, what's the word I'm looking for? He, oh, let's just say he, he didn't side with dissenters in the Vietnam War. Like, this is this is a statement. He didn't dwell on it. And the person said, the second I saw that, I closed the book, got rid of it, and gave it one star. Well, right. okay. Well, you didn't get to the other <laughs> you know, 319 or however many yeah. pages. And it's unfortunate because that's not really what the essence of the book is no. about. No. No. I think one star reviews, I, I think they can do as much good as they can bad. I think they it's always disappointing to get them, I suppose, but then it can sort of direct your readership base, you know, based on those. Because again, if they're so explicit that there's one or two particular things in there, someone can see that and say, actually, well, it can't be all that bad because actually I wouldn't be put off by that. I'm going to go read it, you know, yeah. if they're in two lines. So, mm -hmm. um, yeah, you're not going to please everyone, are you? It's, it's, it's impossible. Uh, yeah. Sometimes one allusion to a thing that they are vehemently against is all it takes for them to shut the book and, yeah. and they chalk up the one star review. It, it almost leaves their review pointless because you know if it's based on yeah if you if you're saying you've only got like ten pages in well I've put down plenty of books halfway through and picked them back up again and realised actually 
you know, I needn't have put it down in the first place because you got to take it as a whole product before you can cast an opinion on it. Right. My I would, opinion. But I, I, of, of course, I agree with that opinion. Like if you, if the person made it through the entire book and said, look, I hit Bugsy's story was tremendous. Yeah. I don't necessarily agree with this one opinion. Yeah. And on that basis, I give it four stars instead of five stars or, mm. or three stars, at least finish the book. Don't, yeah, quite. I mean, I don't want to, I don't want to go around telling people not to be sensitive to certain things. I'm sure there's something out there that I'm sensitive to, <laughs> but I would, I would implore those people to at least finish the book before sure. you, uh, you know, commit what amounts to uh, ratings vandalism. Quite, and some people are out there just to do that anyway. But, um, just staying with the Dan Seven book, just just for one one moment. I'm, I'm so sorry to be jumping all over the place. No, no, I that is again. Anyone who's seen any amount of my shows knows that we we don't follow a, a linear route at all. I don't really like to do that. Um, I as a obviously as a as a, as a wrestler as an athlete very very well respected in a number of fields because he is you know obviously you know he's in ufc he acted very very well there he was you know amateur wrestling background he was the nwa champion still at a point i would say even though it wasn't at the forefront like it used to be it was still very well respected you know the guys who held that title were still you know of a certain level um then he got to wwe it didn't really seem that was when I knew of him, but then obviously when he got to WWE, I don't feel like we were given a fair shake of who he was. Um, was there, is there a reflection in, in from your discussions with him? Did he? How did he feel about his stint there that comes out in the book? I think he was, well, just, just to take things back just a little bit, Dan viewed everything. Um, he's, he's a consummate professional. He views everything as a, as a job. Mm. And if, if he was being paid, he went out and did whatever was required of him uh, by, his, by his employer at the time. If it was, and I, I, I don't recall the exact number of fights he had while he was employed by the WWF at the time. I think it was 10 yeah. that overlapped with what he was doing in the wrestling ring. And I believe his record during those 10 fights was something like 8-0-2. So if, if you can imagine just taking all of the bumps during a pro wrestling match, yeah. uh, taking two days to recover from that, going to some promotion without a training, without a proper training camp. Yeah. And uh, engaging in a three-round MMA, or in, in this case, no-holds-barred contest, and then yeah. coming back two days later and continuing your um, continuing to take bumps in a pro wrestling context, that would be unfathomable mm. today. And it's something he did 10 times during the course of his year in, with the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah. Um, but to answer your question, Dan viewed it very much as a job. He was willing to do whatever was asked of him. Mm. And that gets to, that speaks a bit to the missed opportunities that were there because mm. he was the National Wrestling Alliance World Heavyweight Champion at the time. Mm. And when I asked him, because they had a, a bit of a feud between Dan and Owen Hart yeah. while he was there. Yeah. And I asked him, <clears throat> in, in fact, 
they even had Owen appear as his opponent at an NWA show okay. during, during that period. They allowed Owen to make an appearance. And I asked Dan, would you have been willing to drop the NWA championship to Owen in an NWA ring or a WWF ring during that time? And he said, oh, absolutely. And I'm sure the NWA probably would have approved of it if they felt it would help get them over and the championship yeah. over. But but it never happened. And then Dan, of course, says that uh, Vince Russo came to him with the idea that we're going to put 666 on your forehead. So you're going to be, that's, go, that's the mark of the beast. And you're yeah. going to be the beast as a member of the ministry. And Dan said, I'm, I'm absolutely not doing that. I have to go back to small town America. Uh, and I've, I've been to Coldwater. And that's an accurate reflection of, of what Coldwater is. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to go to small town America where some people don't necessarily understand what's going on in the in, in a pro wrestling context. Yeah. And they're not going to be very receptive to this. And so, no, I'm not going to do that. That very reflective of the fact that I've always held the opinion as well. It's unfortunate he went into the WWF when he did. Um, in the midst of the Attitude Era, it's like they were making a gimmick of everyone. And he was so, he, he didn't need a gimmick. But it, it, that is perfect indication then, I think, of them having to give a character to someone who really he could have out-wrestled most of the guys mm-hmm. on the roster but they didn't want to focus on that they just had to make it sensationalist didn't they well the the only guy on the roster who he had um who he objectively did not out wrestle at one point in time was uh dr death steve williams who mm-hmm. beat him during the ncaa championship tournament during mm-hmm. his during his senior year where they they both wound up as as all american wrestlers so that was fine um but aside from that, I mean, Dan beat Kurt Angle uh, one-on-one in a, in a wrestling, in an amateur wrestling contest. Wow. Of course, this is before Kurt Angle was at the caliber he would become. But yeah, Dan was, Dan was every bit the world-class amateur wrestler mm-hmm. that he was, he was presented as. Yeah. And if you think about um, what it would be like now to get an, active reigning uh at the time dan was the nwa super fight champion reigning super fight champion which sort of became the heavyweight championship Mm. um so if you think about what it would be like to get a reigning ufc champion in a wwe ring Mm. these days and what sort of response that would get now it's it's just a shame how dismissively it was treated yeah. during yeah. that era. It was treated like it just, they did not take it seriously. I mean, when they tried to do the NWA crossover, I think it was the beginning of 98 with Jeff Jarrett and Barry Windham and the Rock and Roll Express, they just poked fun at it, you know? And it's almost like, again, my opinion is spewing out now, but it's almost like Vince just looked at it and was like, they used you know, almost ran you out of business once. I'm here to prove that we are still the bigger dog, you know, and, and you are very, very much a, a small fish in my big pond. And it, it needless, they could have had something really good then, same when, when they brought Seven into it. Yeah, and if you re- sure. if you think about and if you think about the the casting and the way they attempted to uh, portray it, it mm. really didn't work because on the one hand, you branded it as this um, hyper traditional. 
wrestling presentation, almost like Southern fried. Here's, mm. here's a WWF version of the Midnight Express where yeah. it's sort of, where it's sort of goofy. And here's Jeff yeah. Jarrett uh, straight out of a, a Memphis wrestling sort of presentation. But then all of a sudden here's the UFC champion yeah. who can rip anyone to shreds. Yeah. Like that, <laughs> that doesn't work. No. That doesn't work. <laughs> no, they didn't know what they were doing with it. Anyway, let's let's bring it back to. So sorry. No, so don't sorry. worry. No, 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 no. I'm not just not <laughs> not digging you. I'm just there's so much that I wanted to to sort of cover. I yeah, of didn't realize we were going to go down so many rabbit holes. So truth back, be told, back to Brian. Yes, back to Brian. Obviously, you know he's he's had his own show. We've spoken about this before, but he's such a great guy. It's such a good book. Um, I I you know I wanted to kind of discuss from your point of view working with this. How did this one come about? Because obviously, so you you by this point you had had three three wrestling biographies out there. Down seven. Hornswoggle and, and Bugsy McGraw. Mm-hmm. So how firstly, how did the how did the, the the prospect of working with Brian come about? Um, well, some of this information is second and third hand, but my my understanding of it, well, here's what happened from my perspective. <laughs> Kenny Casanova, um, oh, yes. very good friend of mine who has uh, contributed to many uh, professional wrestling biographies and autobiographies. Mm. Um, Kenny messaged me as he did with Bugsy McGraw's book and asked if I would have any interest in working with Brian Blair on his autobiography. And I said, sure, I'd love to. Um, what's, what's the story with it? And he said, well, his writer, the guy who's actively working on the autobiography with him is looking for an opportunity to unload it. He's looking to do it respectfully and find another writer. And I said, sure, I'm, I'm interested. I'd already spoken with Brian multiple times. Uh, Once uh, I'm, I am half Bahamian. Uh, The first professional wrestling event I ever attended was at NASA in Nassau stadium. When I was visiting my uncles, Dusty Rose was wrestling. Uh, Fred, Fred uh, Tugboat Typhoon Ottman in the main event in a last man standing match when he was known as Big Steel Man. Okay. Uh, and I've been, I've been working on a book on the history of professional wrestling in the Bahamas for years at this point. Yeah. Um, I now have all of the information, so it's just a matter of finding the time to sit down and write it, which That's cool. frankly has been very tough to... Uh, <laughs> To set aside. You've been quite busy. I will let you off. It's it's fortunate <laughs> and it's unfortunate at the same time, honestly. Yeah. Um, but I I've spoken with Brian about with respect to that project, and also Brian wrote the forward to I'm sorry the afterward to Bugsy McGraw's book. Uh, okay. So uh, I got on the phone with the writer who had been working on Brian's book. He's he assured me there was nothing at all wrong. He was having uh, difficulty getting Brian booked on occasion, and it was it was taking it was taking too long. And he had some other projects he wanted to work on. So I said, "Okay, that's fine. I I can set aside some time to work on this. Let me talk to Brian." I got Brian on the phone, and he assured me that I would have no trouble with his availability. And I said, well, if that's the case, let's talk three times a week for several months because we don't need to be in any screaming hurry to get this done. Mm. 
And um, after three or four months of speaking three times a week, we had the bulk of what would eventually become Truth Be Told, uh, Brian's autobiography. It's, it's just unfortunate, but this frequently happens as you're writing an autobiography as someone's life story is continuing to unfold. Yeah. We had always intended to conclude the autobiography with um, Paul, with a reference to Paul Orndorff and a visit that Brian had paid to Paul Orndorff when he was struggling with illness in Brian's capacity as president of the Cauliflower Alley yeah. Club. It, it just so happened that as we were wrapping up, Brian texted me to let me know that uh, Paul Orndorff was on the verge of passing away. So we were going to have to rework the ending. Right. And it also just so happens that the day after we finalized the, the epilogue, we, that Brian approved the epilogue and I thought we were completely finished, that Brian sent the text message informingly that his eldest son, Brett, had been found murdered. And of, of yeah. course, we had to uh, include a second epilogue. Mm -hmm. and, and I told Brian, if he wanted to completely scrap the book, shelve the book, whatever he wanted to do, I was okay with it mm -hmm. at that point. Because who am I to tell him what the proper response is when his son just got murdered? Well, I can't. Yeah, it's nothing that any parent should have to go through, is it? So you've almost just, I mean, what I loved about the book, I guess, is that it was, as a wrestling fan, you know, you got to live, I got to live through an era that I, I wasn't, that I, I've loved, I've come to love in, in late, you know, my later years. Uh, it's not one that I live through. It's not one, it's one that I can go back to and find out more about because of stories like his. But alongside, he, like you say, his life is still happening. You still get indications of, particularly near the end, that he's still battling, you know, if, you know, hypothetically, you know, outside the ring, you know, with his health and with things like that, you know, close ones to him dying and whatever. He, you know, he, these stories don't end. You know, he probably could have another one come out, you know, oh, in sir. years to come because he's got that much to tell. Um, certainly when, when you think when you think about his role with the cauliflower mm -hmm. alley club as we're as we're having our discussions you know, he, he might start a phone call off with hey ian like brickhouse brown just died so i'm going to have to cut this short because mm -hmm. i'm going to have to talk to some people about this um kamala just passed away this is yeah. devastating to me because i was so close with him mm. or even when i went to visit him down in tampa and <laughs> i went to visit him in tampa and we're riding around and he's he's asking me if i could send some text messages through his phone while we're while we're riding around so i'm firing off messages to uh to medusa and i'm helping him track down wendy richter's phone number and I'm, I'm helping him get everything set up for a podcast interview that he needs to do. And then we need to run over to Steve Kern's house because Kern doesn't know how to set up his new uh, iPhone properly. And, and as I'm in the midst of setting it up, uh, a call comes in and it flashes up on the screen, Ted DiBiase. And, and, and so once I'm finishing getting, helping him uh, 
get a ring, uh, set up a ringtone. I'm like, hey, by the way, uh, it says that Ted DiBiase called, but I don't know if it's uh, junior or senior. And he just <laughs> he just chuckled and said, senior, definitely. Junior doesn't call me. Fair enough. I think you you could almost one day you could write your story about writing their stories. You know, you you the kind of things that you can kind of live through with them. I I, I almost. I almost feel like I almost feel like that would be that would be a bit of a betrayal. <laughs> of, uh, you know, it's not that there's any sort of a, a attorney-client confidentiality, so so to speak. But you know, telling telling the full backstory um, that that may be of that may be of interest to some people, but I. <laughs> there, there's some true. behind the scenes information that doesn't need to be. No, shared. that's fair. I think it's the kind of it's a situation just like you you described just then. You know, it's something you probably didn't set out to experience, and nothing that any other wrestling fan would. You know, in the in the course of one journey, kind of uh, thing. You know, it's it's fantastic. Oh fantastic. sure, and and you have to think. You also have to consider it from the standpoint that if if I wanted to, I mean, certainly if if opportunities presented themselves and time was permitting, I would. Um, and I would certainly uh, entertain the idea of working with another wrestler in the future on their autobiography. In fact, yeah. I'm working with a wrestler on his autobiography right now. Um, I can't divulge whose project it is, but it is in progress. And if, if I put myself in the wrestler's shoes and a, a, a potential co, a, a co-authoring co prospect uh, was known to divulge all of the behind the scenes information and, and put out his own 400 page work, just filling his <laughs> guts about um, every, about all aspects of every project he worked on. That's not the guy I want to work with thinking no. that, you know, it's, it's going to be fodder for, it's going to be uh, for public disclosure and public consumption yeah. one day. It's almost I, like I becoming, a, a, it's, it's always like being a, member of the paparazzi or the tabloid press isn't it is when it gets to that kind of level it's tattle as they call it i'm not sure but. yeah if, <laughs> if, if you want to maintain if you want to maintain your level of respect and you want people to yeah. talk to you you have to be able to keep certain things under wraps and stick to the subject Fair enough. absolutely yeah. That's cool. Listen, Ian, I'm going to have to start wrapping it up because I know you're a very, very busy man. Just a couple of more questions, just sort of kind of quick fire ones, I suppose. I just want to run by you. Sure. Um, from, a, from a writing perspective, the, the, the obvious one, I guess, um, is, is there anyone's book out there? I know you said you're working on someone's at the moment, but is there, if you had a choice to write anyone's story, whether they're still with us or whether, you know, it, it's, it's sort of um, posthumously, telling their story is that anyone in particular you would want to sort of delve into and represent uh randy savage would be number one uh jumbo saruta would be number two okay. ricky choshu would be number three uh savage and saruta of course no longer with us and uh ricky choshu there'd probably be quite a language barrier there yeah I, i'm a huge uh i was a huge fan of Puro Resu, especially the 80s and 90s stuff. And Saruta is, Saruta remains my choice for the greatest pro wrestler of all time. And um, Ricky Choshu would remain my, uh, my pick for the most charismatic heavyweight wrestler ever in an era where 
the fans surrounding him actually believed what they were witnessing was real. That's a good pitch, man. That's yeah, you know, not ones I would have expected. Fair dues. It is. I guess this one, I don't really know how to word this one. I know what I'm trying to get at. Um, I think from a reader and a fan's point of view, and to take Eric Bischoff's slogan, you know, controversy creates cash. You know, we all gravitate to shocking stories. You know, as a writer, if you're you're writing, you're like I say, representing these um, these wrestlers with their stories. Do you have in your head, you know, what any stories that could be a real hook? You know, if there's sort of controversy involved, is that a good thing or is that something that makes the process a little more difficult? Oh, brother. Um, maybe I'm a little too, as, as I'm attempting to put myself over, um, I'm truly not. Maybe I'm a, a little too, uh, too respectful. I think I just have... A, a bit too much of an aversion to that material. Like if it's a, if I'm work, if I'm working with you and you're the professional wrestler and you tell me, I'm, I want this in the book. It, it's, it's a controversial topic of my career, but I want it in the book. I, I, then I'm going to tell you, okay, it's going in. I may have some suggestions for you as to how it should be framed and treated, but it's going in the book. Um, I think I'm the sort of content curator who errs toward, let's think about what it means to immortalize yourself so that when your grandchildren and great-grandchildren, if you, if you have any, go back and want to get inside the head of their great-grandfather or great-grandmother, and understand the essence of who and what they are. Mm. They're not left. Uh, they're not left hoping that uh, grandma or grandpa could have been a far better person. Okay. Yeah. That's a quality. Answer. And, and 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 also uh, with respect to controversy creating cash, uh, that is. I'm I'm sure that's undoubtedly true, but there are other objectives than simply uh, book sales and generating dollars in these instances. I, uh, I think more about the immortalization component mm -hmm. and the fact that 100 years from now, someone will be able to pick up Bugsy McGraw's book and have a, be able to read uh, respectful reminiscences from his wrestling career yeah. without a bunch of smut. And I yeah. think that would be, I think that would be important to him. Cool. Cool. I'll frame that answer. That's really good. Thank you for that. I don't know. I, I, I've, again, my, I won't put my own opinion out there too much, but that could well be the difference between having a guy like you involved to kind of steer it down, you know, making sure that it, it tells the right story rather than just having someone who's got their own power and, you know, being paid by someone to put their story out there because they know it will shock and it will sell, mm -hmm. you know, definitely. So cool. Yeah. Final question, then really putting yourself back in your, your wrestling fans shoes to close off. Um, is there a moment in wrestling that you've witnessed either, you know, through your lifetime on screen or even in person that's made you proud to, to say you're a wrestling fan? 
that made me proud uh, to say I was a wrestling fan. Well, you can even I go can, the other way if you want. If you want an answer out there to say this one that makes you regret it, but we, you know, you know I, I can I can think of some. I can I can think of something specific. Um, I, I mean, fortunately or unfortunately, this has to do with my um, my pro wrestling, my uh, pro race fandom. But years ago, when I was a uh, pool coordinator and a lifeguard trainer at the at the Southfield Sports Arena back in the Metro Detroit area, I was dealing with a, a I, I had a group of lifeguards who were who were on the staff with me who were decidedly non wrestling fans, yeah. and I was able to take a. Mitsuharu Misawa Toshiaki Kawada match from 2000, pop it into the VCR at the sports arena and just let the half hour match play. And people who despised wrestling were sitting down watching it, asking me questions like, is this real? (laughs) No, this is real. And look at these guys. They're so respected. Look at that audience. This is unbelievable. So uh, for people who whose, um, I mean, you can't even call it fandom, like lack of fandom, the, the reason, it, it, I can't say that they would have been wrestling fans one way or another, but right. for people whose concept of pro wrestling has been distilled through a WWE attitude era filter at the time for them to see to them to sit for them to sit through a 30 minute all japan classic and come out asking questions like is this real no 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 this is definitely real because i can i can see everything and i can i can hear everything i can i can practically feel everything this is a legitimate athletic contest that made me very proud to be a wrestling fan in that moment and to have been a fan of the variety of pro wrestling that I was a fan of. Cool. I, I really, really like that. You know, yeah, being able to, you know, suspend, I mean, this is what wrestling does to us all. So it makes us suspend our disbelief, but that's a perfect answer to that age old question. Is this real? It's not mm-hmm. animated, whether they're hurting each other at some point they do, but whether that move actually hurts them in the way it's being portrayed, maybe not, but what you're seeing, they are actually doing that. Yeah. You know, they're making it look like that has happened. If so. they, they were able to convince viewers of wrestling who were convinced that wrestling was all fake, mm. scripted trash. Yeah. They were able to convince them that everything they were doing was 100% real and that it was to be respected. Mm. It doesn't get any. It didn't get any better than that for me. No, um, I, I felt that my fandom was entirely justified in that moment. There you go, and it brings us back again <clears throat> to justifying everyone's fandom by having products like this out there that you can go on. So, Ian, thank you so so much for, for thank you, Chris. This has been a blast. I've really loved talking to you and, and sort of finding out more about this whole process and thanks again for you know your work i'm, I'm gonna i urge anyone out there to to check out um truth be told but also your other books as well which i will be doing um i'll be going back and checking out it's particularly down sevens um you, you sold that one to me you know well how about so. how about this severance book um 
the version available on Amazon. It was a bit of a rush job. It had a lot of typos in it. I'm not proud of that fact. So um, we'll hop off here. You'll give me your address and I'll send you the, uh, the reformatted, remastered, typo corrected version uh, from my own desk. Oh my God. <laughs> That's amazing, mate. Thank you so much. Oh, and we, I didn't pay him for that, guys. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. No, Ian, this has been a blast. You're welcome back anytime, mate. Good luck with everything you've got going on. Can't wait to hear more about who it is that you're writing for at the moment. Thanks, thanks so much, Chris. I had a lot of fun. No worries. Take it easy. Thank you for listening to a Nerd to Know Media production. 